Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would remember the promise that you made to Jacob and to us through Christ, that you would be with us through to the end of the age. Help us to ever remember this regardless of how we feel and what it seems to be happening in the world around us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Probably most of you aren't familiar with the coast of Maine because we live in Arizona, but I am intimately familiar with the coast of Maine because I spent the first two-thirds of my life thus far there. And the coast of Maine is made up of all these little peninsulas all the way up for, for a good 100 miles or so. And up these peninsulas, there's little towns along the ways. And one of these towns had these two old ships that, for whatever reason, somebody thought, hey, we should just bring these ships up this river and tie them up along the side of this town and let them die there. Not, not entirely sure why people thought that was a good idea, but someone did. And so every time we'd drive down the coast, we would see these ships. And one time I was driving down the coast with my grandparents, and my grandmother said, you know, I remember when I was a kid, they were still there. They were, they were there well before she was a kid, I think, um, or at least, yeah, anyway. But when she was a kid, she would go out and play on them. And, and you know, there's a lot of people that worry about, oh, we, we worry too much about safety. But even the most, like, relaxed parents in the world, by the time I was a kid, wouldn't have let their child go out and play on these ships. And then by the time I was a teenager, early 20s, they finally decided, you know, we should probably do something about these because they become an eyesore and they're not, not really safe to have here. And so they finally tore them down, which was, a, which was a rather, or destroyed them, which was a rather bittersweet day. But you see, they, they took these ships and they brought them up and they just left them there and did nothing to them. And over time, they just fell apart and, and died for, for lack of a better way of describing it. Our hearts are a lot like this. We talked about this last week, right? If we don't tend to our hearts, they tend to just deteriorate and eventually become harder and colder and bitterer over time. And we meet this morning, we we enter in this morning to the last chapter, if you will, of Genesis. Obviously, it's not the actual last chapter, but it is the last chapter insofar as it's the last time that we read, these are the generations of somebody We enter in this morning to these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being a servant, being a servant, being 17 years old, and it carries on. Of course, we didn't read that because I didn't want a rebellion as, or I didn't want to hear Ben grumble, one or the other, about having to read some 38 chap, 36 verses in, from the, from the lectern. And so we did jump a little bit and we jumped over that just for the sake of timeliness. But that's where we start off. We're starting off into our last chapter, and there's something amiss. Something's awry as we enter into this. There, there seems to be a sickness. And it's much like this idea that when we don't tend to something, whether it be those old ships that were just docked and left to die, or our hearts, if we don't, if we don't care for them, they fall apart. Things get worse and worse. <clears throat> 
And so we meet Jacob this morning, and, and again, we skipped over this part, but Jacob is now dwelling in the promised land. And, and they make the distinction between he's dwelling there and his father who sojourned there. And there's this idea that there's a little more permanence going on before now that, now that Jacob's there. But it's not the permanence that Jacob might have hoped for or we might expect. We might have expected, well, by now maybe Jacob has his own little city or a little village at least. But it, it seems like Jacob is just living as a nomad like other people in the land. A nomad with, with goats and sheep and all of that that go out and wander around and his, his sons take care of him. And we might have also expected something more significant, that by now Jacob had gotten into his thick skull how to behave. But very quickly in this lesson, we learn that Jacob already has a favorite, which for some reason he didn't learn doesn't go very well with the picking out of his wives. That, that was a kind of a disaster. <clears throat> but now he has a favorite son because he's, he's the youngest son. He was born of his old age, and what a great thing. Except that if you've ever not been the favorite, you know what that feels like. You don't much love the favorite because the favorite sort of stands out. The favorite can do no wrong. And so Jacob is, is not the is J, or Joseph starts to be hated by his brothers. But then Joseph does something else. Joseph tells on his brothers. We don't really know what he tells on them for or whether it was justified or unjustified. But again, if... <clears throat> If you're sitting there, you know, if you get pulled into your boss's office, for example, or perhaps you remember when you're a kid and your brother tells on you or your sister tells on you, that doesn't feel very good. Whether you did the thing or not, you're like, well, I thought so-and-so was going to keep that to themselves, but nope, now I've got to deal with it. Which may be a deserved it or didn't deserve it. We don't, we don't really know from the text. He just gives a bad report about his brothers. And, you know, as we read on, we start to, to recognize the brother's moral character and not terribly surprising that they did something that, that was not so great. So probably it was true, but we don't know for sure. And then finally, there's the issue of the dream. If these two other things, if, if, Joseph's, if Jacob's favoritism of Joseph wasn't enough, if the fact that Joseph told on two of his brothers wasn't enough, all of a sudden Joseph comes out and starts bragging about the fact that one day his brothers will be dependent upon him. Now, especially if this was your younger brother or something along that lines, you probably wouldn't take that too well. And so Jacob keeps getting knocked down further and further in his brother's minds. But then we enter the section that I affectionately call the nightmare. We go from Joseph's dream of this, this hopeful future where he has power and he's, he's doing something good for his brothers to this nightmarish situation his brothers have gone off a fair distance. I think it's about 12 miles. And for us, that's, that's roughly, I looked it up this morning because I was kind of curious. Roughly, if you go to the junction of um, Tane Road and 69, so we all know kind of how far that is. And if, if you're driving it, it's not bad. You can get on, on the, the little loop there, and it doesn't take too, too long. Don't drive through Prescott Valley. That's awful. No offense, Prescott Valley friends. <clears throat> But imagine if you had to walk that, how long that would take. You know, even if, if you're a good, healthy walker, it's going to take you like four hours to get there. And he, of course, he's already gone one place and his brothers weren't there. So now he's looking for them in another place. And he's walking this whole distance. That's quite a ways off. And we learn something about sin from this, right? 
if his brothers insist, if his brothers had been like you know at the VA comparatively to us, they probably wouldn't have schemed to kill him. They probably would have been like, well, we're not going to get away with it here, so we'll wait till we're further away. But when you're far away from the place where you're known, in the privacy of your own home, something like that, it's it's so much easier to sin when you think no one is watching. It's so much easier to do things in private. This is why pornography is probably such a scourge in the church, is that people don't think anybody's paying attention, so they do it privately, but it hurts people. It hurts relationships. It hurts the person's soul. So make no mistake, those, those sins, whatever they are, are painful. They cause pain. And eventually, just like we know if, if we've read the Bible even once, we know this whole story fairly well. It's, it's pretty well known. Eventually, their sin is going to come out, which is not, not quite right away. And it's the same with our private sins. John, St. John, writes that eventually what is in darkness will be shed, will light will be shed on it. And so we have this opportunity to flee from those private sins, to flee from them and into the arms of Christ, to bring them into light before light is shined on them. And so they ploy, they plot rather, to kill him. But Reuben, finally the oldest, is thinks, you know, that's not a great idea, guys. Let's, let's not kill him. Why don't we just throw him into this pit? And the pit, the pit is interesting as well. It's this word that can be translated cistern, and some people think, well, maybe it's actually a cistern because it's dry, and that, that's what they're making note of. <clears throat> but it doesn't really matter. The, the idea of the pit also often has to do with judgment and death and all of that. So there's an element in which Joseph is being tossed into his death. And the whole story of Joseph, of course, we know, has these foreshadowing tones pointing us towards Christ. Twice he's buried into these pits. Once this, literally, and then he's pulled out and sent off into his slavery. And the second time he's tossed into prison. And then it actually talks about Pharaoh pulling him out of the pit to serve him. In both cases, we see the death of Joseph and his resurrection reminding us of the greater death and resurrection of Christ. But there's also another significant thing going on here. Before Joseph's dream is realized, he must be buried. And while the brothers' actions are repugnant and not good in any semblance of it, I hope you guys recognize that, there's an element in which Joseph was kind of a pompous jerk. And Joseph needs to die to himself, to be die and then be re-risen, in order that he can actually lead well. he must be buried. Just as often we must be buried in Christ to rise from whatever those sins are that we are struggling with. And even in those dark and dreadful moments, those dark and dreadful moments where we feel like we might be dying, we realize just as Joseph eventually realizes in this story that God is with us this whole time. My friends, if you are in Christ, whatever you are facing Today, Christ has promised that he will be with you to the end of the ages. And just as Joseph's hope is in that future, where he's raised to the right hand of the king, he doesn't quite know that that's what's going to happen, but eventually he will be the king's right-hand man, the Pharaoh's right-hand man. Christ was raised to that right hand 
of God. And one day he will come again. And so just as Joseph eventually will realize, even in those dark and horrible times, God was bringing him to this hopeful future. God is bringing us to that same hopeful future, the hopeful future that one day we will know fully Christ's reign. But now the brothers' wicked hearts are revealed even more. I'm not sure if we actually read this. I don't remember quite how I broke it down. But what they do after they toss him in the pit, Joseph's just walked that, that four hours, five hours of walking. He's tired. Then all of a sudden his brothers strip him, toss him into the pit, which you know, would have resulted in at least some injuries, some scratches, some uncomfort. They sit down in front of him and they eat. Just adding insult to injury, if you will. And then Judah, I think we skipped over this, but that's okay. Judah gets this bright idea. He thinks, let's sell our brother into slavery. I I hope I don't need to say this, but just in case I do, there's nothing redemptive going on inside of Judah's mind right now. What Judah is doing is evil, and what they scheme is straight-up evil. Judah quite literally just wants to gain some money. The word really is about gaining money immorally, and that's exactly what he's doing. And as we imagine this, we should imagine how horrifying this is. This is really an uncomfortable situation. And then when we come to the end, the resolution is still not much more hopeful. It's still quite bleak. They take Joseph's cloak and they kill a goat to deceive their father. Do you all remember anybody else who kills a goat to deceive his father? Jacob does the exact same thing to his father. And so his sin comes back and haunts him. Just as Jacob killed the goat and put the goat on him so that his father would think he's his hairy brother Esau, they kill a goat and dip the, goat, the, the cloak in goat's blood so that he, Joseph, Jacob would think his dear son Joseph was dead. And Joseph, or Jacob knows no better and is beside himself and swears that he will live in misery the rest of his life. And Joseph is sold, in dis- sold to an officer of Pharaoh's guard where he, where he will be a slave. one of the things most striking about this passage is there's no evidence that the brothers even care for what God might think or desire from them. There's no desire for intimacy. There's no desire for obedience. They were like those ships we talked about at the beginning, falling apart deeper and deeper into moral disrepair. But something else interesting happens in this passage. If we're feeling depressed now, I I sort of apologize, but not completely. If we're feeling depressed now, there is something interesting here. Never once is God or the Lord or any other synonym for God used in the Old Testament mentioned. It's, It's 36, 37 verses of narrative in which nobody seems to care what God is doing. And Joseph, whether he thought about what God was doing or not, or was just in misery in that pit, 
had a sense of aloneness. One of my favorite Christian modern artists is Andrew Peterson, and he has this he has a song called The Silence of God, which bemoans those times where it seems like God isn't there. And if we were Joseph in the pit, and if we were aware enough, we would have had that sense that God was silent. Where is God? He's never mentioned. And it's okay if as we read these parts of scripture, where we see something truly horrible happen, we feel uncomfortable. We should feel uncomfortable when we read those parts. Because people, because it doesn't tell us of God's ambivalence. God is not ambivalent here. It unravels people's sin. It emphasizes how humanity so often turns its back on God and does as it pleases, does what it thinks is right in its own eyes. And sometimes it may very well feel like we're Joseph in that pit. It may very well feel like God is silent, as Andrew Peterson writes about. But there's some comfort that we can take. There's some hope that we can take if we find ourselves in that pit. If we find ourselves wondering, where is God in this? Whether it is that you're living your own nightmare like Joseph is, or you've just had a rough couple weeks and you feel sad and alone. First and foremost, remember that promise again and again. The promise that was made to Jacob and the promise that was made to Christ's disciples as Christ waited for his ascension. Christ is with his disciples. Christ is with you if you are in Christ to the end of the ages. It is a promise that is true. So take heart. Christ is with you. Secondly, your salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is not dependent upon how you feel, but rather upon the truth which we find in Scripture. Don't take this as one of those statements that say, feelings aren't that important, don't worry about how you feel. My wife, who's a counselor, would not let me hear the end of that. Feelings are important, but feelings can be deceptive. Sometimes Satan can use our feelings to make us feel like we are alone when we're very much not alone. Sometimes feelings can just be feelings. It's okay. Talk about them with somebody. But remember that the truth of the word of God is not dependent upon how you feel. At the same way, an emotional high is not the same thing as intimacy with Christ. We can stoke your emotions to feel like, oh, today was a really great day of worship. And then you go home and you collapse. And then it feels like, oh, well, where is God now? The emotional high is not the same. But rather understanding and knowing the truth of God's word and knowing the truth that whether you feel like it today, because we have gathered, because we are the body of Christ, The Holy Spirit is present today. How encouraging is that? And finally, if you want to hear from God, let me tell you a little bit secret about how you do it. Open your Bible. Read the Psalms if you're discouraged. I promise you, there are encouraging Psalms in there. Read the Gospels if you feel like you don't know Christ right now. He is revealed 
in there. In God's word, you will meet God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, over and over and over again. My friends, it's okay to recognize that this passage is bleak. And, to, and if we just only picked up the Bible and only read chapter 37 and closed the Bible and never read it again, we would be without hope. But we don't read a chapter in isolation. We read it in chunks. We read it to understand the whole of the story. And, it, and then as we start to recognize, we can know that even here, where we don't hear this explicit explanation of God working, If we read all the way to the end of Genesis, we will see that he was working all along. God is working in Jacob. God is working in his sons. God is humbling Joseph that he can be a good leader one day. And you can have confidence, my friends, that even when it feels like God has gone silent in your life, he is working. Cling to Christ. Be like Jacob a few weeks ago, who clung to God and refused to let go until he has given you a blessing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.